The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Father, as always, we come to you like we do Sunday after Sunday. And we're just pleading for fresh grace and fresh mercy. We want your Spirit to, to come now help me preach with clarity to help us all hear with clarity and to penetrate our hearts and to, to comfort us and to convict us to do your work to make much of your son in our hearts wherever that needs to happen. So you know all the needs and the joys and the sorrows in this room and it's only your perfect, omnipotent, sovereign, providential, fatherly care that's going to make this this moment, one where every person leaves changed. And that's what we're asking for, miracles of grace in every heart. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, on Wednesday night, many of us were heading home uh, from Connection, or had just gotten home from Connection and heard tornado sirens and phone alerts warning us that there was danger nearby. I heard of someone who got off the exit in a certain city and got an alert that the tornado was on the ground right in that city, and that it was not a big city. (laughs) They were trying to figure out where to go. I was getting videos of the worship team practicing in the kitchen uh, as the alarms are going off. I think Daniel and Cademan were in there too with them for some reason. Daniel's always there, right? And and later on, we had this, this second round of warnings come that told us there was one on the ground six miles south of our house. It was on the ground. It was coming our way. And so we did what we had to do. We got all of our kids up and with pillows and blankets in tow, we all cuddled up on the couch in the basement. And our kiddos were scared. Right? They were scared because there was real danger nearby. And in our text today, uh, we can imagine the disciples being even more afraid in the middle of a different kind of storm. Because the chances of danger actually landing on them was a lot higher than the danger of a tornado actually hitting our house. There was a real and present danger of persecution, and the persecution was coming from a really ugly, sinful, dangerous, powerful combination of religious leaders that despised them and a corrupt government that like to please those religious leaders. One of their own had been murdered, James, and another one was in prison in chains. And where do we find those believers doing? What what are they doing? Well, they're praying, right? We saw that in verse 5 and verse 12. And when the tornado sirens went off and we were getting the videos of the worship team in the kitchen and hearing reports of them when we knew people that we loved were traveling, we stopped and prayed as a family for safety for ourselves, for all of you headed home from church, still stuck at church, and for everyone else in the area. What I wanted to stop and do for a moment is realize what prayer implies. What does prayer imply? Well, it implies that we think our God can do something. Doesn't it? Is that why we pray? It implies we think God can change something about the situation. 
Kids, I'm sure that you ask your parents for things often, sometimes good things, sometimes maybe things that aren't as good, right? And as we stopped and prayed as a family, we were talking to God like little children because we thought he could do something. That's why you ask your parents for things, because you think they can help you, they can get you what you need or what you want. So the prayer implies we think God our God can do something. And as we see suffering and persecution build in the book of Acts, it's not going to go away, it's just going to keep building. We see a people devoted to prayer because they believe God can act. They believe with all their hearts that Jesus is on the throne and He's reigning. And God decides in His sovereignty how He will act and what He will bring about. That's called providence. The providence of God. He's controlling all things. You could say, how much does he control? Well, I could read all sorts of verses. Bruce did a good job of just praying a bunch of them before about God's providence. But here's one verse that, that sums up the providence of God. It's Psalm 135, 6. It says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven, and on earth, in the seas, and in all the deeps. That's pretty expansive. That's pretty comprehensive. God does what He pleases, period. That's who He is. That's what He controls from the seas to the deeps, in the heavens and on earth. Whatever He pleases, whenever He pleases, no one can thwart Him or stand in His way. But I want to encourage you in as we read this story today and think about the hardship and the struggle and the persecution that we might find in our own lives is that God's providence for His children, for us, is not neutral. Right? For us, Psalm 135.6 is not a, a neutral statement. So listen to these really familiar statements, but just let them land on you in a fresh way when we think about God controlling all things, powerful over all things, and think about how that works for our good because of Jesus. So Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. What things work for our good? All things. Everything in your life right now is working for your good. Or Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I think follow is just too weak of a translation. I don't even like it. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. The picture here is of goodness and mercy chasing you down from the hand of the Lord every single day of your life until He gets you to where you ultimately want to go in His presence. So His providence towards His people is not neutral. So, when the tornado sirens go off and you get your kids out of bed, or when suffering comes, or when persecution gets more widespread we lean into the providence of God. His sovereignty, His control over all things. And we get to know, we're the only ones in the world, but we get to know that without a doubt, because of Jesus, all things must work for our eternal good. All things. And that ultimately will lead us to eternal 
glory. And so as we read through the book of Acts, and you see these people praying and leaning in to the providence of God, you're going to see some amazing things happen. And you're going to see some horrible things happen. And what you can know is that God is working all of them for the good of His people and for the glory of His name. I give you that context because sometimes we can read an account like in chapter 12 and go, that was awesome. Right? Like God just took him out of prison. And we can forget earlier in the passage where it says that James was murdered. We've got to wrestle with the providence of God even as we pray and see both of those things under his providence, under his control, and working for the good of his people. So point number one is the, the pleasures of persecution. Look at verses 1 to 4 here where we see the ugliness of this persecution It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So if you kind of dig into the the history that's going on in this moment in the church, in this region, what you find is happening is that Herod's power at this time was a little shaky. There are different people vying for power. And so what Herod's trying to do is seeking to solidify his power in this region. And one of the most powerful groups of people in this region were the religious rulers. So they, they have this power. They have this influence. They're a big, uh, big political interest group. And so it says he lays violent hands on some who belonged to the church. But it wasn't just that it got violent for some, but we have our second recorded martyr here. James, the brother of John, was murdered for the sake of political gain and under the pretense of religious righteousness. We've seen this from the Jews over and over again. They're always seeking to maneuver, to strategize and flex their power through political channels. It's an ugly distortion of religion and worship. So he arrests, Herod arrests Peter and locks him up after he's murdered James. As always, they care about appearances. There's a feast going on, right? Their feast is going on. The unleavened bread, the Passover is going on. So they don't want to mess up their party. But with pleasure, they look on the murder of James. And with the pleasure that the Jews had in the murder of James as leader of the early church, and with Peter locked up, we can only assume that there were similar plans coming for Peter after the Passover. It's very clear they didn't want him to get away and that Herod was loving the attention and the praise he was getting from the Jewish leaders. So he assigns him four squads of soldiers. A squad was most likely four soldiers. That's about 16 soldiers assigned to one guy. He puts him deep in the prison, as we'll see in the next point, with layers of guards. So we could say, why all of the guards? Why all of the security Why all this? Well, probably two reasons. Number one, it's been very hard to keep these guys in prison in the book of Acts. 
It's been very hard to keep them in prison, right? He's probably heard about the tomb. He's heard about these other instances, and he's going, I'm going to double down. I'm going to put 16 of them. And the reason he's doing that is that he's eager to not let this guy go, but to win points with the leadership of the Jews. We just need to stop and see how ugly this is. This is despicable. It's wicked. This is a partnership based on hatred, power, and control. This is an evil partnership in a group of people that so hated Jesus that it brought them pleasure to see people murdered in his name. Pleasure to see people murdered. This is what sin does when we get consumed with control and with anger and with bitterness. We just want to control things and get them our way. And that's what's going on here with this political and religious manipulation and control. And one thing that should help us do is not be surprised as we see the culture growing more and more avidly against people who speak for the name of Jesus. If you look throughout church history, we should not be surprised by a culture growing increasingly angry, hateful, wanting to control those who speak in the name of Jesus. Right? Who wants to be told they're a sinner in need of a Savior apart from the Holy Spirit? Right? Who wants to be told that? Who wants to be called to lay down their sin that they love and they've been told is their means of self-expression and authenticity and freedom in our day and age? Of course, the answer, as always, like it was here in Acts, is no one, including us, apart from the Holy Spirit. Right? If, if we struggle, anyone in here struggle to lay down some of your remaining sin? Anyone in here struggle with control issues? Right? We struggle and we have the Holy Spirit. Imagine the hopelessness and the hatred that arises in the heart of someone who does not know Jesus is being called to repent and lay it down. Kids, I've said this throughout the book of Acts, but I just want you to hear it over and over and over again, even when you're little. Following Jesus will sometimes mean that people will say mean things about you or do mean things to you. But I want you to know that he's worth it. Throughout church history, he's been shown to be worth it. And not only are we called to endure such suffering like James did and like Peter does in this story, but we're called to love them as they persecute us. I don't want us to forget about our first martyr we saw, Stephen, pleading for the forgiveness of his murderers even with his last breaths, just like who? Like Jesus. That's the example we see as the most ugly, stunning, ridiculous persecution and murder of innocent men. Their last breaths are pleading for forgiveness for those that would persecute and murder them. In other words, even as we see these examples, what you're not going to see, you're just not going to see it in Acts, is an angry church calling out sin because they want to gain power of society. You don't see that. That'd be awful. That would be becoming like the culture. That would be fighting ugly, sinful fire with ugly, sinful fire. What we see is a church lovingly calling out sin, speaking boldly because they want to gain souls and see people from the culture come into the kingdom and have eternal joy. They're working for the joy of the people that are trying to murder them. 
And this is the calling of us in our neighborhoods and the nations. This is the price some of our global partners are having to consider if they're willing to pay even now. Make much of Jesus, call for repentance, and then extend the love and forgiveness of Christ no matter the cost. And this is what we've seen and will keep seeing through the book of Acts. People continuing to put themselves in harm's way and speak the name of Jesus because they love their neighbors and the culture around them that wants to kill them. Is that our heart? Are we more like the Jewish church who's angrily trying to fight for our own control and power in the place that we are? Point number two, the prison break of Peter. So I'm going to read verses 5 to 6 in the beginning of verse 10 first, just to show you how impossible uh, the prison break was. It says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Skip to verse 10 the beginning. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. So let's look at how impossible this prison break was. Right? There's 16 soldiers assigned to Peter. And it says that Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. And I want you to understand what it means. When it says he was sleeping between two soldiers, it means he was on the ground with one arm chained to a soldier on each side. It's not like he's sleeping there and he just had to like get up really quietly so they didn't hear him. He's chained to these other soldiers. There was no way to get out of this situation. Herod was not messing around. And then notice in verse 10, he passes through a first guard checkpoint, and then he passes through a second guard checkpoint, and then he gets to just something as simple as an iron gate. Right? This, is the, this is the strongest gate. This is the strongest material they had to keep people in. So he's chained to two guards, has to get through two checkpoints, and then runs into an iron gate. Herod had him heavily guarded so he could bring him out after the feast and please the Jews with another martyr. Others had not been able to keep them locked up, and Herod's like, I'm not making the same mistake. You're going to stay in here. But then look at verses 7 and 9, and verses 10 and 11. It says, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Verses 10 and 11. The gate opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So we've seen a couple of these elements before in Acts, and we're supposed to know that what they mean is this is the Lord's work. We've seen the angel of the Lord show up to bring about God's purposes before, and we've already seen light shining to signal God's presence in the conversion of Saul. So that's the point in mentioning those things. God is doing this. This is His rescue. What would be an impossible prison break for anyone else is quite frankly easy for God. 
Right? It's just not difficult. We don't get the idea from the narrative that they're sneaking around. It's one of those prison break movies going through the vents, right? And digging holes to get on the outside, right? They're just walking out of the place. We should actually stop and marvel just how simple this is. This is not a difficult maneuver. The angel wakes him up, says, hey, get up. The chains fall off. He gets dressed, walks past two checkpoints. The gate opens up for them. Peter comes to, set free from the prison. The angel leaves off to do more of God's work. And Peter's standing there going, that was pretty simple. Right? Right? That's probably why I thought it was a vision. I'm, I'm certainly not just walking out of this prison. This is easy for God. We love to hear these stories. Now remember, James was just killed for the name of Jesus. Even though this is easy. But Peter lives, and this looks simple. So what's the point? What are we supposed to get from this text? Well, here's what I think we're supposed to get. Christians are invincible. As long as God has purposes for us, and the moment we die, whether by old age or persecution, we go to be with Christ, which is far better. Both of the elements of this story are victories. Not one that's a failure and one that's a victory. Both of these stories are victory. James is with Jesus, which is far better. Peter is broken out, and it's easy because there's still work to do. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Peter will actually face a similar death later in life. But for now, he has work to do for the sake of Christ, and so he's invincible and rescued from the prison. Let me make one more encouraging note, just explicitly, even though you've been hearing it, what I've been saying. Bruce prayed it already as well. Evil planning and evil partnerships cannot thwart God's purposes. Evil planning and evil evil, uh, partnerships cannot thwart God's purposes. They never have. They never will. So when when we sing... I will not be shaken. I stand in trust. I, right? I won't be moved. I won't be shaken. We mean it because we know evil plans and evil partnerships have never thwarted God's purposes. If you look out right now and you're tempted to think God is losing, his cause is being stopped, he's got, people got him under his thumb, you're just not seeing what the Bible says. Right? In the worst persecution, God is moving wicked politicians that are seeking approval from wicked people can't thwart God's purposes. What can man do to us? Right? King Jesus reigns. We're not looking to get the right person in power. The right person's already in power. Jesus is already on his throne controlling all things. He will accomplish his purposes through his people, and no earthly power can plan well enough, send enough guards, pass enough policies, intimidate enough people to stop the name of Jesus from being proclaimed and praised in all the earth going to keep doing it. And in fact, I just keep saying this, you should dig into some church history. When governments try to do this, eventually the church grows and it's overthrown. Over and over again, take heart. Many different places, many different people, many different partnerships have tried to conspire to snuff out Christianity. And here we are 2,000 years later in Rome, the mightiest thing we could ever imagine is no more. God will keep working. Point number three, the power of prayer. So look at verse 5 and then verse 12. We're meant to see these as bookends to this account of Peter in prison. So, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest 
Prayer for him was made to God by the church. And then he gets out, the gate's open, the angel's gone, he wakes up and it says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other's name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now I just want to point out, we don't know exactly what was prayed. And in fact, if you read on in the story in chapter 12, Caleb's going to preach on this next week, but the servant girl that opens the door does not seem like she's expecting to see him. It's not like, man, we've been praying for you. We knew you'd be coming. Right? There, this wasn't like a confident, like, man, we've just been praying and fasting. We knew he was going to break you out. We knew it, right? They've got James in their minds. Earnest prayers being made for him. But, but basically, when she goes in, like, she kind of loses it. She doesn't even stay and talk to him. She runs back in to tell everyone else. And their response is not, praise God, we've been praying. We knew we knew God would do this. Their, their response to her is like, you've lost your mind. You're crazy. You're seeing things. If they were expecting a prison break, it's not obvious from the story. But this should, this should encourage you so deeply. You don't need to pray with a certain gusto. <laughs> you don't need to pray with any kind of certainty. Once in a while, God will grant these prayers of faith, but you don't have to count on kind of praying yourself into an adrenaline or praying yourself into a momentum or praying yourself into some kind of frenzy. What you do is you just pray. Like God is using what seem to be feeble and fearful and certainly not confident prayers. And he hears those prayers, even our feeble, doubtful prayers, because we belong to him. He hears our prayers, our weakest cries, our groanings, our broken heartedness, our God, you've, you've hurt me in the past, right? I've, I've felt your hard providence in the past, I'm just scared, right? Like, as we were praying, even as our son was going into open heart surgery, like, we're praying kind of fearful prayers because we've had hard health providences, and here he's going in, we're just like, oh, we want to believe, but we're scared to pray, but we're just going to do it barely, and then we're going to cry. And God hears our prayers in moments like that, not just at the prayer meeting where it's like fireworks. Be encouraged. God hears feeble, fearful prayers because we belong to Him. This is what the gospel gives us access to. There's no condemnation. He hears our prayers. Even the, the feeble prayers rise to His throne as a delight to our Father. We're meant to see Peter's prison stay and prison break bookended by prayer. We know they were praying earnestly for him. We know they're still praying for him when he breaks out. And we're meant to see the sending of the angel of the Lord as a response to their prayers. We're meant to see that King Jesus hears and responds to our prayers. He doesn't always answer yes, like with James, but sometimes he does. Here's just a, a question for you right now to just test. Are we praying earnestly? If the Lord were to answer yes to all of your prison break level kinds of prayers right now, what would change in the world? Good. That's great. Are we a boldly praying people? A people that come together often to plead for the Lord to intervene for the good of His people and the glory of His name. We see the people in Acts constantly gathered to pray and the Lord often answering their prayers with boldness for witness and healing and endurance for persecution. 
Do we pray like our king is reigning and he can do something about the impossible situations we find ourselves in? Do we pray for our most hopeless relationships, the most lost and hard-hearted people that we know? Do we pray against our most habitual sins we're struggling with? Do we pray for our fear in sharing the gospel, our lack of love for our neighbors? Do we pray for our endurance in suffering, healing for diseases, salvation for family and friends? Are we just pleading, just laying it all out there, pouring out our hearts before him like he's the king and he can do something about it? In other words, if a historical study was done on us, would they characterize the South Campus as a people who often earnestly gathered to pray and prayed like they believed in a God who created all things to shine light into all the dark places of this broken world and give us glimpses of redemption. I want us to pray. I want us to, I want us to pray. <laughs> like really pray, even if it's just feeble and broken, you barely got anything. Lord, help is a great prayer. Lord, I'm broken. Help is a great prayer. If it's all you got, pray it. Groanings are a great way to pray, according to Romans 8, and we can trust that the Spirit is carrying our prayers before the throne of God. So the application is pressing into prayer. So we talked at the beginning about pressing into the, the providence of our King. Now, I really think this is the foundation of prayer. To let the foundation of your soul be the reality that God is pursuing you with goodness and mercy all the days of your life. And to know that King Jesus will never leave you, will never forsake you, and will work all things for your good. I mean, if you don't, if you don't believe that stuff like to the core of your being, why are you going to pray? You're just not. But you've got to know, like, He controls it all, and He's for me, and He's pursuing me, and my prayers to Him are delight. Grace has brought you safe thus far, and grace will lead you home. It's, it's all by His grace, and He knows what's best for each day. you just got to believe that to the bottom of your bones. And if you don't believe, say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I want to believe you're this for me. I want to believe you love me this much. I want to believe your gospel is really this real. I want to believe that there's no condemnation. I want to believe that you hear even my feeble prayers. I want to believe you can restore this marriage. I want to believe. I want to believe because of who you are. But oftentimes, the really strange thing that happens is that kind of belief in God's sovereignty, even at a place like Bethlehem, can lead to a kind of fatalism, not fervency. It's a strange dynamic, a kind of thought that, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. Right? We, we, we really believe in his sovereignty, and we grit our teeth and say, God is good, right, when we're suffering. And we get through it because we know it's for our good theologically, and that's true, yet we can sometimes lose this, this deep love he has for his children in working, and the, his invitation to ask him, like James 4, 2-3 is true even for us who believe in a sovereign God who has providence over all things, right? He says, you do not have. Why? Because you don't ask. <laughs> so let's never be guilty of not having because we haven't asked for. And this isn't like a, like a legal list of like just ask and work yourself into a frenzy and just wonder, did I ask enough to ask enough? This is like, come ask me. I'm a father who loves you. Right? The reason you don't have a snack, kids, is because you didn't ask for it yet. Your father wants to give you good gifts. And he says, come and ask for it. Your prayers are the way I ordain my purposes. 
We don't have because we don't ask. We ask and don't receive because we're not asking in light of God's purposes, but to get earthly desires and passions. It's in this same book of James where we're called to ask for wisdom from above, and it says he'll give it without reproach. What does that mean? It means that when you ask for wisdom, he's not going, God, you guys are so dumb. Don't you get it yet? Gave you a whole book. He just goes, yeah, I'll, I'll give you wisdom. Thank you for coming to me. That's what I'm teaching you to do. This is the same book, James, where it says, ask for healing. Just plead for it, ask for it, and sometimes I'm going to give it. This is the same book where we're called to draw near to God, and what's the promise? He'll draw near to us. <laughs> That's crazy. Draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. Jesus tells us to pray for real things. Pray for daily bread, forgiveness of sins, help to forgive others, deliverance from temptation, all in light of hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we need a big picture of God, His holiness, His purposes, His providence, His sovereign power. We need a big picture of His love towards us. His holiness means He loves us too much to let us settle in our sins. His purposes for us are always for our good and His sovereign power is always working on our behalf. We need both. Big God, big love for His people. God has ordained the means of prayer to accomplish the ends of His purposes. The prayers for Peter and the prayers to keep people safe from the tornado on Wednesday are a part of the means God uses to accomplish His purposes. Do you realize how often we just, we just do this weird thing where we go, right, we gather and we go, it's a tornado, Lord, please keep people safe. Lord, have it pass over the people we love. Right? And when it passes, we assume, man, we just got lucky. Right? That thing didn't hit us. It went the other way. But what if your prayers matter? What if you're meant to pray those things and when it doesn't happen, go, Lord, thank you. You kept people safe. Worship practice went long in the kitchen because the tornado didn't hit it. They like stop and go, he actually answered our prayers. He actually hears us. Kids, you often ask your parents for things, and sometimes they say yes, and sometimes they say no. But you ask them because you know that they're doing what is best for you as best they can tell. And you ask them because you know that they love you. And we have a father who doesn't just do the best that he can tell, but who always answers perfectly. If I think of my level of being able to see the world and understand what's going on, and so my kids ask me something and I have to say no, or I get to say yes, and I think, man, here's what they know, here's what I know, so I have to answer this way, and sometimes it's hard. Man, the gap between me and God is so much bigger. The gap between me and God is so much bigger, and He's always answering for my good. If we know the character and power of God, if we know His love for us, we should be a people bringing our biggest, scariest, darkest, ugliest, most burdensome request to Him and pleading for Him to shine the light of His presence into the dark places of our hearts, to confess our doubt and our fear and our worry and our anxiety and our bitterness and our hopelessness, and our need for control, and just plead with Him, Lord, shine. Shine the light of Your presence into my life. 
Dissolve my bitterness and my anxiety and my worry and my hopelessness and my need for control. Lord, shine your presence in me and then shine your presence through me into the lives of my neighbors and family and friends that don't know you or my small group members that are in a hard place. Shine into me and then shine through me. We should plead desperate prayers to our Father with boldness approaching His throne because Jesus has made a way and now when we go to the throne of grace, we only find, only find mercy and grace and well-timed help. That's all you're going to get when you go to the throne. Our prayers, Revelation 8 says, it says our prayers rise before the throne of grace as a pleasing aroma to our Father. So God can do what he pleases and we rest in his sovereign goodness towards us but he often ordains the prayers of his people to be the means that bring about his purposes there are things we don't have individually and as a church because we we don't ask there are things that we don't have because we ask wrongly for for earthly desires and passions and yet what god would say to us is keep coming <laughs> keep asking God loves his children because of the blood of Jesus. So let's be a people quick to prayer individually, in our small groups, in our men's and women's groups, in our counseling sessions, in our worship services, in everything we do. Now I was thinking this week, I was just thinking about what we always see the church doing. It's like Luke wants us to see that the church prayed a lot. Right? The amount I have to talk about it. Like if you're sick of hearing about it, it's not my fault. It just keeps showing up in this book. And I think this is what makes the church different from every other place. We have complete dependence on God's power and complete reliance on His grace. If we abandon prayer ourselves individually or as a church, as the thing that shapes our vision, that shapes our planning, that shapes what we do, that shapes where we go, that shapes how we spend our time, then how are we different from any other organization? Like, how are we any different from any other organization? But we know we have 24-7 access to a God who delights to hear our prayers and respond to them with whatever sustaining, sanctifying, or supernatural grace that we need. Let's not neglect that privilege. Let's not become just any other organization. Let's be the church, the blood-bought family people of God that believe God can do more in our sleep than we can do with our whole lives? Would we be a people that show that we believe our King reigns, that He's interceding for us even now, that He shed His blood to give us access to the throne of grace, and would we show that by the passionate way we learn to be like little children and plead for more of His grace, more of His light to shine into the darkest places of our hearts. So let's just have a, a season here, four or five minutes of prayer as we, as we head towards communion. So you bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're in here right now and you're not yet a, a believer, you haven't trusted Jesus yet, uh, what we're about to do is, is take communion and eat and drink with him. And what I'd love you to do right now is just consider Jesus. Just consider where you've been putting your hope and where you've been finding your joy and where you've been resting and, and maybe now would be the moment that Jesus would, would come and shine the light of His glory into your heart and show you that He is the Savior of your sins and the Lord of your life and that's a beautiful thing. And if you're in here right now and you're 
already a Christian, would this be a moment, these next four or five minutes, where you would bring your biggest, ugliest, scariest things to the throne of grace? Bring your prison break level prayers right now to our God and ask Him to move. And I'll come up in a few minutes and we'll eat and drink together. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.